0: We are in a message series called I Am a Christian, but I Still. I'm a Christian, but I Still. Dot, dot, dot. Last week it was doubt. This week it is sin. In the bulletins is the message notes. We want you to take those out, fill in the blanks, follow along with us. If you're online, you can do this as well. If you're online, you're going to click right down here. It's called Notes. There's a little tab. Also, click on the chat. Tell us hi. Tell us where you're watching from. We'd love to connect with you. But then click on the notes. Don't chat during the message. Click on the notes and follow along with us online. I am a Christian, but I still sin. 1 John 1, 5, and we're going to get there in just a moment, but I want to talk to you. We're going to talk today about sin. It has become a lost art, unfortunately, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but it has become a lost art for preachers to preach about sin. I don't know if you're noticing what I'm noticing, but there's a trend in the Christian church to be cool church. Well, like our church, actually, we're a cool church. We got the lights, we got the band, we got the hip, skinny jean-wearing youth worship pastor. You know, we got the coffee and the cafe, and we got the what is it called? The the nitro brew, and then we got cool kids ministry, cool youth ministry, cool, 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 cool. And the unfortunate um, byproduct of cool church is to not talk about the scriptures. And not teach people what God's Word says authoritatively, especially in regards to sin. We don't do that here at Waters Church. If it's in the text, we're going to talk about it. And we're not going to compromise, and we're not going to sidestep issues regarding sin. The truth of the matter is the lights, the smoke, and the skinny jeans on our worship pastor are all there to trick you to come (laughs) so that I can nail you with with God's Holy Word and God can change your life. Amen. <laughs> the theme of this series is Christians have not, do not, and will not have it all together. And the sooner that we embrace that reality, the sooner that we can come to terms with the joy that is the journey of faith moving closer to the goal of God's glory. I'm a Christian, but I still. We have this tenuous relationship with sin. Um, we, don't, we don't handle this well. I've been in the church my entire life, and I have noticed that we struggle greatly with the concept of sin. Never mind that we sin. We just struggle with the whole concept. Many, many ways we we struggle. I have a couple of facts about the church's history with sin that reveals our struggle with it. Fact number one, Christians are supposed to be against sin, but as Christians, we still sin. So we, we don't want it, but we still do it. And then when we do it, we don't like it. I said in the last service, we have this Taylor Swift relationship with sin. You you know what I'm saying? Taylor, Taylor, Taylor Swift's relationship with whoever she's singing about, that's the church's relationship with sin. So we like it, we romance it, we fall for it, it disappoints us, then we hate it, and we write a song about it to quote her from 2013, to get all 2013 up in this place, we should say to Sin, I knew you were trouble when you walked in, (laughs) Mr. Sin. Fact number two, could you just mute that? That's gonna really drive me nuts. Okay, fact number two, professing Bible-believing Christians can be guilty of the worst kinds of sin. Have you ever seen a Bible-believing Christian really blow it? And Sometimes I think that every Christian has this secret list in the back of their minds, secret list of sins that if you commit, I will never forgive you. Whatever that list is for you, I think it's different for all kinds of people, but especially it becomes a serious problem for people on stage in regards to adultery, Pastors who fall into sin, it's like as soon as that happens, goodbye forever, we're writing you off. That is now the unforgivable sin. Where do you get that? It's not in the scriptures. It's not in the word. Listen to me very carefully, Christians. Grace is supposed to be our most powerful weapon to destroy the works of Satan. And sometimes we use it as a weapon to ruin our brothers and sisters. Fact number three, when a Christian sins big time, we other Christians have a hard time forgiving and restoring them. I'm telling you, we just have this tenuous relationship with sin. Some Christians hold on to sin as some kind of justifiable right for the rest of their lives to be angry at God or the church or life in general, we struggle with this stuff. Fact number four, we tend to look down at the sins of others, while conveniently ignoring the sins of our own. This is why Jesus said, take care of that log. Take care of that, that log in your eye. How dare you look at the speck in your brother's eyes? There's a, big, there's a big plank in yours. We need to start mastering the practice of yanking the plank. Somebody say, yank the plank. Just touch your neighbor and say, yank that plank. <laughs> the bottom line is, we don't know what to do with sin. I don't want to talk about sin because sin is going to wreck your life. And Christian preachers need to get back to preaching the truth of the text, whether or not modern people and culture agrees with it. See, the answer to sin in our world is just pretend like it doesn't exist. You know, this is even the word sin to modern Americans seems antiquated, seems like a a remnant of our Victorian puritanical past. Sin is an ancient religious term. That's not what real problem. That's not the real problem of humanity. They need more education. They need better jobs. They need equality. They need justice. Our world is constantly trying to solve problems while ignoring the heart of the problem—the problem of sin. Forty years ago, there was a famous psychologist. He wrote a book. His name is Carl Menninger. He wrote a book called Whatever Became of Sin. Because he looked on the cultural landscape of America and he realized that people were really good at playing the victim card about their problems and their challenges. And he would meet with people and he would try to counsel them forward. And he watched as countless times, patient after patient after patient that he talked to never improved. And he said that they love to play the victim. They love to blame others or culture. They love to delve into their childhood. Oh, they love that. Blame mom, blame dad, it's not your fault, I'm okay. I am the consequence of other people's bad decisions. He got so fed up with it because the people who do this never improved. He decided to write that book. Whatever became of sin. And he called it what it is. The problem with our culture is sin. The problem with you is sin. And he said it right there on the book. And, and his scientific community, his, his fellow associates in the psychological study, laughed him to scorn. How antiquated. How outdated. But he was right on. The problem with our culture is sin. The problem with our nation is sin. The problem with our community is sin. The problem with our neighborhood is sin. The problem with our family is sin. The problem with you is sin. Feeling blessed to be at Sunday service so far. (laughs) My message is usually not this offensive this early on, but it'll get better. we got to talk about the real problem or we'll never get better. I want to talk about the word sin in the Greek is harmatia. Harmatia. I want to give you a little bit of a backstage pass to what I do for a living. I am a preacher, a teacher of the Word of God. It is my job, according to Scripture, to rightly divide the Word of Truth. The most hallowed part of this job is to make sure that what I tell you from this stage is actually studied, verified, and accurate. A lot of people think pastors get up here and wing it, so we twiddle our thumbs all week in our offices, and then we wait for you to show up, and then we get up here, and we just say what's on our mind. That's not true. We plan, we study, and we rightly divide, and There's a science to it. It's called hermeneutics. That's the fancy word for Bible study. What do we do when we do hermeneutics is we delve into words, ancient words from Greek, ancient Greece, and ancient Hebrew words. And what did these words mean at the time in which they were used? It's a fascinating study. I actually have a a volume of books. I have it digitally, but I used to have it physically. And if it was printed out, the volume of books just on New Testament words alone, studying their semantic ranges, would be this large just the words of the New Testament. You could get into this, get lost in this. But harmatia. So I looked it up. Harmatia. Let's talk about how was it used. Here's how you study the Bible properly. How were words that were in the New Testament used before they appeared in the New Testament? Because that will give us insight into how the authors of the New Testament saw the concepts that they were talking about. Does this make sense? Am, I, am I, Are you tracking with this? Okay, good. So I looked this up with Harmatia. I found out Harmatia actually was used to refer to in ancient Greece. It comes from Aristotle, actually. And it was used to refer to Greek gods' tragic flaw. So in, in Greek mythology, all the gods, and then they had a tragic flaw, something that they just it constantly held them back. I'm going to name a Greek god, and instantly you're going to tell me what his tragic flaw is. Okay, here we go. One, two, three. Achilles. Heel. That was his tragic flaw. As strong as he was, as powerful as he was, his heel stopped him from accomplishing what he needed to accomplish. And so I thought I'm going to give you two disregarded facts about sin. Two disregarded facts about sin because we often think that sin is the fun stuff that God doesn't want us to do because he's a cosmic killjoy. (laughs) So, according to semantical study of the word sin from the Greek text, number one, sin messes with my abilities, it is my tragic flaw. It is that part of me that keeps messing with my ability to accomplish my my goals in life. Sin will mess up your abilities. Proverbs chapter 5 22 puts it like this: an evil man is held captive. look at this by his own sins. they are ropes that catch him and hold him and the illustration is hold him back that's what sin will do to you'll it'll, it'll weaken you. this is why this is why um, Solomon writes to his son in the Proverbs, he says, my son, do not give your strength to the immoral woman. She will rob you of your strength. She will rob you of your abilities. That's what sin does. We all want to do things with our lives, amen? I want to do things with my life. I want to accomplish things. Here's what the scriptures are teaching is, well, if you want to accomplish things, the best thing to do is to deal with the sin, so that you stop ruining your chances at accomplishment. Now today in our modern culture that denies that sin exists, and things that we, 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 are, we Christians are outdated and antiquated. I, I got some statistics to prove that sin is still messing with us, even us very modern, scientific, educated people. For instance, 30, 38% of Americans right now are battling an illicit drug disorder, drug use disorder, 38%, almost 40%, illegal drugs and prescription drugs. It's a major problem in our culture. Almost 50% of Americans say that pornography is a serious problem in their homes. Almost 50%. According to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, Illness, one out of five Americans struggles with mental illness on a given year, 20%. LifeWay Research, this is a Christian research organization, found out 80% of our conversations are spent on gossip. Wow. 80% of our conversations are spent talking about other people's problems. Now, we fake like we're just concerned, but what the Bible actually just says is, no, that's gossip. Household debt right now in America is almost $1 trillion higher than it was in 2008. That's overspending. That's not living within your means. That's materialism, lust of the flesh. The Bible talks about these things. Spending more than you make. According uh, to some research, 40% of Americans are obese. This leads to serious problems that disable you. Heart disease, strokes, type 2 diabetes, cancer. 25% of women, I couldn't believe this statistics. I had to double check it. 25% of women in America experience domestic abuse right now. By the way, According to ChristianityToday.com, the most violent husbands in America are evangelical Christian husbands who don't go to church. So, quick lesson be a man, go to church. Stop being so violent. One in five women in the U.S. has reported being raped at least once in their lifetime. Why are you unloading these stats on us? pastor, because in spite of all of our knowledge and advancement and education and, and, and civili- civility, we are still getting disabled with sin. And the educator wants to tell you it's an intellectual problem. And the scientist wants to tell you it's a biological problem. And the geneticist wants to tell you it's your ancestor's problem. And the sociologist wants to tell you it's a relational problem. And God help us, the politicians are about to start telling us it's somebody else's problem. But the Bible is very clear that the problem is the problem of sin in you. And we need to step up. If ever there was a time in our country's history, ever in world history, for the church to not keep silent but to speak up about the problem of sin, it is today not to glorify sin or promote sin but to tell the world the problem is sin. And the good news is we have the solution and the solution is the blood of Jesus Christ which washes away sin. <laughs> washes it away. The second disregarded fact about sin, sin messes up My purpose. We all want to live for a purpose. Even non-Christians want to live for a purpose. What's my purpose? Why am I here? Why was I born? There is a purpose for you. What is the purpose? Well, the purpose is the glory of God. Romans chapter 3, 23, though, tells us the sin messes this up. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. quick, quick. Nuance on harmatia. Again, sin here in this text. Harmatia is an archery term from ancient Greece. It means to fall short. It means that you tried to aim at the mark and you missed it. It fell short. That's why Paul uses that term here and says all have sinned and fall short. Of what? What are you made for? The glory of God. Now, everybody wants the glory of God. Even non-Christians want the glory of God. We just seek for it in things outside of God. God. What is God? God is love, so we seek for love outside of God. What is God? God is power, God is strength, so we seek for strength and power outside of God what is God? He is truth. He is light. We seek for these things. When we seek for these things apart from God, we create idols that promise to give us these things and then actually end up destroying us. And what we have to understand is is that that is that sin nature in us that keeps aiming for things that are lower than us. And we need God to come in and solve the sin problem so we can hit the target, the target of God's glory and feel the life and live the life that we were made to live. So to that end, Our big brother in the faith, John the Apostle, who gave us John's gospel, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Revelation, writes a letter to the church in the first century talking with the reality of our struggle with sin. Would you stand with me as we read from 1st John chapter 1, verses 5 to chapter 2, verse 6. Here's what he says. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, God is light My little children, I am writing to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, In him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be pleasing in your sight. And I ask God that our hearts will be stirred by the truth that is in Jesus. Help us to see him, him and him only. In his mighty name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. God bless you. Have a seat. So John takes on the same thing that we struggle with today, only he takes it on 2,000 years ago under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit instructing the church back then and for today. And he writes to them three statements that he's going to disavow for the church. I call them three denials. Each of the statements goes like this, if we say we are lying, but if we do this, we are cleansed and come into the truth. Three times the same same organized structure. If we say we are lying, but if we do this, we come into the truth, and he changes us. So the first statement starts in verse 6, and he says this. He says, if... We say we have fellowship with him. While we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So if we say we know God, but we walk, continuous action, walk, continuous action in darkness, we lie. In other words, we can't claim to know God if we keep doing and keep living in the things that are disconnected from God. Darkness. So three denials, three solutions regarding sin, John gives us, three, three denials, three solutions regarding sin that, God gives, that John gives us. Number one, denial. God is okay with how I live. This is very prominent in our culture. No, that's no longer sin in my opinion. Well, I'm okay with that, God's okay. How do you know? I had a conversation with him. We talked this out, he's okay with it. God understands, or America's favorite, God made me this way. This is who I am. I have to be true to myself. And John says, You're lying. You can't walk any which way that you walk. God is light, he says in verse 5, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, John is writing to an audience in the first century that was getting attacked by a a heresy in the first century of Christianity called Gnosticism. Gnosticism. I only bring it up because it's still alive and well today. Gnostics believed that if you came to secret knowledge, the word uh, gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, gnosis in Greek, secret knowledge, if you came into secret knowledge, then you were really spiritual, and the rest of the world were a bunch of morons. It was a very convenient way to elevate oneself over the rest of society. And the Gnostics also believed that your physical body and your spiritual body were disconnected. So what you did with your physical body didn't really matter to your spiritual life. This is rooted in Platonic dualism. Plato, who who taught the very same thing. The physical world doesn't matter. The spiritual world is the only thing that matters. So what you do with your body is irrelevant because it's going to the ground anyway. So do whatever you want. It was a very convenient and popular heresy in the first century for Christians who wanted to indulge their flesh. Well, my body doesn't really matter. I can do what I want. So I can eat what I want. I can have sex however I want. I can do whatever I want with my body because that doesn't really matter. It's going to die and go into the ground anyway. Only, what only The only thing that matters is my spirit. This is Gnosticism, and it's alive and well in the church today. We just don't call it Gnosticism. Just call it feel-good Christianity. I do whatever feels good, whatever feels natural, whatever comes naturally. It's not... It's, it's not the truth, my friend. Jesus is light, and he exposes darkness in us. And so John's solution is in verse 7. It says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light. If we walk in the light, underline the words in your text, if as he is in the light, as he, in other words, there is a true light that has come into the world, and his name is Jesus. He is the true light. And what does light do? it exposes, it illuminates, it makes things clear. How many of you do this? I do this all the time. I'm doing it more as I go older, but you wake up in the middle of the night and you got to go to the bathroom. So you walk around in darkness. Anybody do this? And you do this. You do this. And, and and there's darkness, so you can't see. You could be in a very familiar place, but how many know when you walk in darkness, you're just waiting to stub your toe? You're just waiting, like there's gonna be something there's gonna be or the, the the classic is when there's a plug on the ground and you step on the plug. Oh man, come on. Times you wish you weren't a Christian so you could just swear and curse for a few moments. Pain. So what I do now. I put my little smartphone next to my bed, and when I wake up to go to the bathroom, I just take the smartphone flashlight. I walk around this little light of mine. How many know that that saves me from pain? That little light, it doesn't have to be a lot, it's just got to be a little. It illuminates potential hazards. It shows me where to go and where not to go. It keeps me safe. This is what Jesus does for your life. He illuminates onto your life the things that could destroy you and hurt you and wreck you. And if you ignore the light, you are playing a dangerous game with your own life come into the light he says come into the light and here's the thing the great thing is that when you come into the light, you have fellowship with other people your relationships with other christians are healed and the blood of jesus his son cleanses us from all sin so solution number one to denial number one is this come into the light of jesus the light is jesus the light is not waters church The light is not one particular denomination of Christianity. The light is Jesus, and any church that is not preaching Jesus is not a church. You come into the light that God has sent into the world to expose the darkness and to protect you and empower you so that you can walk straight in life. And then he says it cleanses us. That word cleanse is an important word in the Greek text. It's katharizo. Katharizo. What a great Greek word. Let's say it all together on the count of three. One, two, three. Katharizo. Now, that looks like an English word we might be familiar with. Catharsis. We actually get catharsis from this word. And the definition in our English dictionary of catharsis is the process of releasing and thereby providing relief from strong or repressed emotions. Hear what the Bible text is actually saying. See, sin comes in and messes with you it messes with your emotions it messes with your internal reality and what we do we don't want to, we don't want to deal with it we just rather just suppress it the world calls it a repressed emotions the bible just calls that sinful nature that we don't want discovered and so what we end up doing as christians especially is this we start to fake it around other people we start to balance plates like the clown all the plates spinning on our little on our little Teetering rods, and, and so we're one kind of person over here, and then we're another kind of person over here. And we're one kind of person to our family, another kind of person to our church, another kind of person to these people, and we're all just trying to. And then one kind of person to God, because we have to, we have to fake it even with Him, even though He knows everything. Is so what does John say? You're gonna fall apart if you keep doing this. Here's the answer to it. Why don't you just come into the light and let Jesus Christ not condemn you, but cleanse you, wash you clean? He's not out to get you. He's out to help you. Don't walk in darkness. You can't can't live life as you want as a Christian. God is not okay. He wants to change your life from the inside out. Moving on in the text, John says in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Denial number two, being a Christian means I'm morally superior. This is a very popular philosophy amongst many Christians. Well, I'm a Christian now. I'm better than non-Christians. That's not really true. Some of the best sinners I know are Christians. Here's the thing. Christians are not better than non-Christians. They're just more honest about the fact that they're not as good as they should be. That's what Christianity really is. just about confessing the fact that I know I need to change. He says, listen, if you're living like this, this idea that you're morally superior, this idea that you're better than your spouse, better than your, 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 your neighbor, better than other people in your church. Listen, you're playing a dangerous game. It's actually called the game, John says, of self-deception. And by the way, there is no more dangerous deception than self-deception because we're born self-deceived. I don't know if you understand this, but you, you are born self-deceived. Self-deception is to think you're right, and everybody around you is wrong. That's self-deception. I'm morally superior. I am right, you're wrong. We're born this way. According to Lady Gaga, she's 100% right. We're born this way. Born this way. I have researched this extensively through practical reality. I'm the father of three children. All three children were utterly convinced that they knew what was best for them, and it has been my wife and I's job to regularly convince them that they don't. Have you ever ever heard uh, property law according to a six-year-old? I love this. Property law according to a six-year-old. If I want it, it's mine. If it's in my hand, it's mine. If I can take it away from you, it's mine. If I had it a little while ago and changed my mind, it's mine. If we are building something together, all the pieces are mine. If I think it's mine, it's mine. If I give it to you and change my mind later, it's mine. If it breaks, it's yours. <laughs> Self-deception. You don't have to teach this to children. And it's the job of a parent to say, no, you're wrong. And a child says, no, I'm right. And then you said, no, you're wrong. And you have to do this for years. This is why you get gray hair, right here. This is why. My wife was driving with our seven-year-old son a couple of years ago. He was like five at the time, driving down the road. She said, look, Jake, there's a squirrel in the road. And he says, no, it's a raccoon. She says, no, it's a squirrel. I know what I'm talking about. I'm older than you. No, it's a, it's a raccoon. She says, it's a squirrel. He goes, it's a raccoon. She says, fine, it's a raccoon. He says, I told you so. <laughs> Self-deception. Unfortunately, in America 2019, we are becoming an adult culture of self-deception where we don't want anyone daring to infringe on our right to define reality according to how we feel. This is how a culture destroys itself, by the way. And when you come into Christ, you come into the light and He reveals and He exposes that you're not as right as you think you are. And that is a very healthy place to be because when you know the sickness, you can go to the doctor who has the cure and He can get stronger. Paul the Apostle struggled with internal sin. He says in Romans 7:17, 7, I know it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Sin dwells within me, Paul says. In verse 20, he says, If I don't do the things that I want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. There's something in me. In Romans 7:24, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? In other words, there's a problem inside me. There's a condition of sin. As a Christian, he writes this. And so if you're struggling with that stuff inside of you, welcome to the club. You will, as a Christian, wrestle with this until Jesus comes again. Don't deny it. Walk into the light and be freed from it. So he says in verse nine of 1 John one, he says, "If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins and cleanse us." There's that word catarizo again, and cleanse us to bring that emotional healing and release, to forgive us of all of our unrighteousness. So solution number two, if you're taking notes, is this that, conf- that we that we we don't deny sin. we confess sins regularly. What's the answer to our wrestling? Was it confession? to just say it, and to just admit to God, I have done what is wrong. This is a spiritual well-being strategy. The word confess in the Greek text is homo legomenon, which means to say the same thing as another. That's literally what it means. So when I confess my sins, I am saying the same thing about my sin that God says, I'm saying, God, I agree with you that this is improper for me. This is going to hurt me. This is going to hurt our, my family. This is going to hurt my life. I, I, I confess that I have done this again. And by confessing, you find the faithfulness of God, the justice of God, and the cleansing of God. It's hard to confess, though, isn't it? Hard to confess. Years ago, um, about 13 years ago now, Our church, this church, had just moved out of a permanent facility and we went into a school as we built out another facility down the street here to move into eventually. I just remember the time frame in which this happened because of that. And I remember I was a young pastor, church had just started, feeling pretty good about myself. Went to visit one of our members in a nursing home, as all good pastors do. I was driving back to the church from the nursing home and I was driving too fast and I got pulled over and I got a ticket. And so I did what all Americans do. I fought the ticket. And I showed up at the court hearing that day, ready to plead my case, had the strategy all worked out, pre-planned in my head, sat down. When it was finally my turn, this guy had been listening to uh, uh, excuses all day. He goes, okay, what's your story? I said, well, and I just just unloaded. Well, sir, I'm a pastor (laughs) of a church in the town. Filled with good, honest, hardworking, tax-paying citizens, and I was on my way home from on my way back to the church where I pastor from visiting a member of my church where I pastor at a nursing home. As a good pastor, I was on the way, and I was a like, pastor, church, pastor, church, pastor, 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 church, pastor. And I'll never forget what he said. I catch you now. He said, "Okay, stop." <laughs> and he said. Do you deny the speed? And I I didn't really hear what he said, so I said, What? <laughs> Trying to bide some time. <laughs> said the officer here wrote down a speed that you were driving. Do you deny the speed? And I said, touche. <laughs> Do you know why? He had me, didn't he? I had just got done telling him that I was this pastor of a church in the community, this upstanding moral citizen. If I deny the speed, I'm a lying pastor. So I hung my head, and I said, no. I was going that speed. And he wrote the ticket off, and he said, just don't come back. And I said, hallelujah, bless you, brother. Can I do anything for you? Come to church this weekend. I would love to see you. The confession brought the forgiveness. Oh, <laughs> well, how we try to do the same thing with God, don't we? You're not pastors, but oh, God, I, I'm doing my best. I'm trying. I'm a good person. I know I did this, but I'm trying. If you just look at my other things, I'm doing good. I'm trying hard. Or the blame game, Lord, you know, it's not my fault. It's my wife. It's my sister. It's my brother. It's my cousin. It's my niece. It's my mother. It's my father. It's my company. So all these people, don't you understand? Just like Adam and Eve, Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> Bad preacher joke. Bad preacher joke. But you laugh, so thank you. Courtesy laugh. When it comes to the things that we struggle with, we can either try to justify ourselves Or just come clean. And you know what God in heaven does when we come clean? He says, I forgive you. And he writes off the fine. Not because the fine goes unpaid, mind you. The fine was paid 2,000 years ago at the cross. He's faithful and just. Some of you need to do this. Some of you need to just let it out to God there's two types of, types of confession in the, in the, in the scriptures. There's con- confession to God and then and then there's confession to others because some of our sins we need others to have some word in on this with us. Can you help me here? That's why small groups exist. So I should have some brothers and sisters in, in faith who are so close to you that you can talk about real issues and not be fake. So Uh, David talks about this in Psalm 32. Look what he says. When I kept silent, he's talking about a sin. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. That's what sin does. It just eats at you through my groaning all day. And then verse 5, he says, and then I acknowledged my sin to you. I just came clean. I did not cover it up anymore. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity. Look at the phrase. Because not, they're not synonyms. The iniquity of my sin. The iniquity is the sense of wrongdoing. The sin is the wrongdoing. When we do wrong, we feel wrong. That's iniquity. And, Paul, and, and David says that when we come clean, God actually washes away the sense of feeling wrong. It's a beautiful passage of God's cleansing work. Moving on in 1 John 1, he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. He's talking to Christians, and he says, Christians, if we say that we have not sinned, we're telling God you're a liar. Yes, Christian, you will struggle with sin. Denial number three, real Christians do not regularly struggle with sinful actions. This is a denial, this is a myth. Scriptural myth. Some of you might have friends who tell you this. Ever since I became a Christian, I stopped sinning. Mind you, while they are telling you that, they are sinning. They are lying. Even the Apostle John says this is true for all of us. Look at the scriptural text of Paul struggling with sin. Peter struggles with ethnic superiority in Galatians chapter 2. Racism in Peter... Struggling with sin? Maybe you've heard the phrase from some loving Christian. If you were a real Christian, you wouldn't struggle with that anymore. If you were a real Christian, you wouldn't sin in a way that I don't presently sin. Nice, convenient way to look down our noses at other people. You say, listen, I'm trying. You ever have this conversation? I'm trying. And what do they say? Try harder. How many know you've tried harder and it gets worse? Anybody with me on that? Sometimes the worst thing we can do is just try harder. Because we wrestle with sin, because sin is more powerful than us in many respects. If we could try harder and get better, Jesus never would have had to come. Do you understand that? C.S. Lewis famously says this this way. He says, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried to be good. (laughs) I love that phrase. I love that line, it's so true. You're trying, I'm trying. No, 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 that's not the answer. That's not the answer to sin that you struggle with. Here's what he says in the first verse of the second chapter, and I love this, he's talking to Christians who repeatedly fall into the same sinful habits. I love the first three words of chapter two. He's building to the solution. He says, my little children, see the fatherly tender care of the apostle John here. See the fatherly, tender care. Because listen, Christians, if we're going to be a great church where sinners are feeling welcomed, here's the thing. We have got to learn to be tender with repentant sinners. Are you with me on this? I need a much better amen than that. Thank you. We, what, what I'm trying to tell you is the worst thing we can do is just just tell people who are stuck in sin, trapped in sin that they're shameful and they should just stop it and get right and shame on you. I mean that comes naturally because we're all filled with human self-righteousness. So the worst thing we can do, but Paul, but John the Apostle, I love his, his fatherly concern. He says, "My little children, I care about you." He even says, "I write this that you may not sin." The Word of God is the answer to sinful habits. I write this. this It's in the text. It's here so that you don't sin. Another classic phrase from a lot of Christians that I hear is, the least tender response to regular sin in other Christians is, repentance is only repentance when you stop doing it. (laughs) Anybody ever hear that? Repentance is only repentance when you stop it. Okay, well, these people have not read the word. They they haven't read what Jesus said. Jesus is talking about repentance in Luke chapter 17, verse 3. Look what he says. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, what? Forgive him. Then top of the list of things that I wish Jesus had never said, right here. If he sins against you seven times in the day, what kind of a jerk Doesn't just do it once Or twice Or three times Or four times Seven times How many of you know That's a pretty stinking long day Right there And seven times Comes to you Says I repent You must Forgive Notice that Jesus doesn't say You must tell him To stop it before you forgive him. So then repentance, according to this text, cannot possibly mean that you stop doing it. What does repentance mean, according to this text? The word in Greek is metaneo. It means to change your mind afterwards. That's what it meant. That's what it means. So here's what repentance is. This is what a repentant Christian does. They here, And we all do this. This all happens with us. We get deceived. We get led astray. James talks about this, chapter one. We get led astray by our own lusts and then we sin, we fall for it, like that Taylor Swift song, we just fall for it again, and then we, we're done, and then we, we hate it. What the heck was I thinking? How can I be so deceived? And that change of mind, that change in your mind about what you did, that is repentance. The difference between Christians and non-Christians is non-Christians don't feel bad afterwards. They don't think there's anything wrong with it. This is what I'm supposed to do. God made me this way. This is how I was. I'm born this way. This is what I am. And they just do it and they don't feel bad about it. Or they just say, This is the way of the world. This is the way of business. You got to lie. You got to steal. You got to cheat. This is just how it is. And so they do that and they don't feel bad afterwards. They don't think differently afterwards. But a Christian does it and they can't live with it and they want it out. If you don't want it out, check yourself you may need to repent and turn to Christ truly and receive him as Savior and Lord. So John then says this in verse 1. He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Solution number three, to denial number three, Jesus, our advocate and our offering. I am so glad that John doesn't say. The answer to repeated sin is to just try harder. The answer to repeated sin is the answer to the first sin, Jesus. You might want to write this down. Christians need Jesus too. Christians need Jesus too. we need him to help us with what we're struggling with today and then when, when we get over that we need him to help us with what we're going to struggle with tomorrow and we need him to shine a light on areas that we don't even realize we're struggling with we need Jesus, we need him We need he is the rescuer, he's the advocate the advocate means the defense attorney who pleads our case before the holy God and says father you can't punish them for those sins because they came to me in faith and I covered their sins 2,000 years ago on the cross I paid their ticket And then he's the propitiation, which means that he takes away the wrath of God. He takes away God's holy, just wrath, anger with our sin, because he took it on the cross 2,000 years ago, and he buried it. And because of him, we can stand confident before the Father. Why does Jesus do this? You know why Jesus does this? Do you know why? 1 John 4.10 says this. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Do you know why Jesus went to the cross? Because he loves you. Because he loved you from the foundation of the world before you even were born, he loved you, and he didn't love you because you were worth loving. He loved you because he is love, and he chose to love you. And when you come into his love, you receive the propitiation of your sins, the taking away the wrath of God, and a free and clear judgment from the judgment seat of God, and you stand innocent and righteous before him. And then John doesn't stop there. Mm-mm. Nope he gets to what i call the visible results of struggling with sin cuz he doesn't want to leave you the way you came look what it says the visible results what came before was confession repentance turning to jesus and then what comes next is verse 3 by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments so there's a change in our lives but it comes after the process, confession, repenting. Are you following me here? Don't get the order wrong. A lot of Christians get the order wrong. First I obey and then I get confession and forgiveness. No, first you confess and you get forgiveness and then you start to obey because of the confession and the forgiveness and the healing that Jesus brings. And he says, whoever says I know him does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In other words, there will be a visible change in your life as you come clean with what you struggle with, with the Savior who can change it. So last night my wife and I made me watch her favorite movie, Pretty Woman the third time we've had to watch it. I have to admit, I kind of wanted to watch it too. (laughs) If you ever watched that movie, that movie is the gospel. Julia Roberts' character is a prostitute, and if you watch, it's Richard Gere, this rich, billionaire, handsome, rich, successful man comes into her life, starts to love her, bring her in, starts to pay for new clothes, give her dignity, self-worth. She doesn't deserve it. He gives it to her, and if you watch her outfits change through the movie, it's a beautiful picture, and in the beginning, she's dressed very scantily, very prostitute i I don't know what the word is, just, yuck, and as he loves her and brings her in, she starts to change, and she starts to get different, and by the end of the movie, she looks gorgeous and beautiful. She wants to get an education. She wants to better her life. She wants to get out of prostitution. She's done with it. It's the gospel, man. Jesus Christ is the one who came to our street corner. He brought us in. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We weren't even looking for him. He looked for us. and He paid for us to get new clothes, to shed the garments of our old lifestyle and to put on the garments of righteousness, his garments so that we could stand justified before God, and then not just justified before God, but feeling self-worth again, feeling dignity again, feeling like we could do something with our lives again. Don't you understand it's the gospel that Jesus finds worthless sinners and brings them into his family and loves them into success and triumph and victory at the cross. This is so cool. Who knew that Richard Gere was Jesus? You come to him as you are, friend. And his love and his grace and his mercy and his cleansing makes you who he wants you to be.